Welcome to the Tech Meme Ride Home for Tuesday, September 4th, 2018. I'm Brian McCullough. Today, Amazon hits a trillion. The EU is giving Netflix quotas. Gaming out various Apple rumors ahead of next week's event. And the robots are coming to the drive through window. Here's what you missed today in the world of tech. Move over, Apple. There's a new member of the Trillion Dollar Club. As Amazon's shares hit $2,050.50 in intraday trading today, Amazon became the second-ever trillion-dollar company by market cap on U.S. markets. Apple, of course, reached this milestone a mere five weeks ago. Amazon's stock has gained more than 70% just this calendar year and has more than doubled in the last 12 months. So literally, you could have looked at Amazon with a $500 million market cap a little over a year ago and been like, yeah, it can't go any higher than this. And you would have been very wrong. At the time of this writing, Apple has a market cap of $1.1 trillion, so Amazon has $100 billion or so to close the gap and claim the market cap crown. Amazon, Apple, and Microsoft have by themselves accounted for more than 35% of the S&P 500's total return this year. Do we need some sort of anthropomorphic name for trillion-dollar tech companies like we have unicorns for billion-dollar tech startups? What do you think? Trillicorns? Trillzillas, maybe? Trilobites? Never mind. Yet more news in the Europe regulating what tech companies can do space. There's a new law winding its way through the various EU authorities that will legislate the material streaming services, like Netflix, will be able to show, at least in European countries. Specifically, streaming services will need to dedicate at least 30% of their catalogs to local content. This will mean that Netflix, Amazon, and others will be required to either fund the production of content actually made in those European countries, or acquire locally produced content, or pay into national film funds, something that is already required in Germany. Interestingly, by some measures, since Netflix in particular tries so hard to produce content palatable to local tastes, it actually might not be that far off this proposed quota. The law in question would take effect in December, and the 28 EU member countries would have 20 months to enact these quotas, which could be raised to as much as 40% of local content if a country so chose. And each nation can decide whether they will require locally produced content or follow the German model, which adds a surcharge to subscription fees to support national production funds. There are other EU rules currently being written that would force user-generated platforms like YouTube to pay increased copyright fees to film and TV directors and writers. Google announced late last week that it would make Ethereum blockchain data available via its Google BigQuery service. BigQuery is an API that allows developers to work with large data sets, like an entire blockchain, to explore that data and gain insight into it. But... You might say, I thought Ethereum already had an API. Well, Google says BigQuery is better. It's more complete and, well, they claim bigger. Quoting from the Google Cloud blog, while the Ethereum blockchain peer-to-peer software has an API for a subset of commonly used random access functions, 
API endpoints don't exist for easy access to all of the data stored on a chain. Perhaps more importantly, API endpoints also don't exist for viewing the blockchain data in aggregate, end quote. That last part is noteworthy because BigQuery allows for analysis that isn't possible with the regular Ethereum API, like tracking a network of related transactions, say. It also allows engineers to do seemingly simple but very meaningful things. Here's one you can't do without BigQuery. Google engineers determine the top 10 smart contracts in the Ethereum blockchain measured by transaction count. The number one smart contract, the main smart contract for CryptoKitties, an online game in which players digitally collect and breed virtual cats, storing their DNA in the Ethereum blockchain. Ethereum joins Bitcoin as the second blockchain that can be accessed using BigQuery, but Chris is still waiting for it to support Dogecoin. So much crypto, much API, wow. In slightly less optimistic crypto news, Bittrex, a Seattle-based cryptocurrency exchange, will delist Bitcoin Gold on September 14th. The Next Web reports that this latest blow to Bitcoin Gold comes after the popular Bitcoin fork, quote, suffered a series of debilitating heists that netted thieves over $20 million in stolen funds, end quote. Today's announcement shows that crypto security really matters. If your cryptocurrency suffers an attack, it might lose access to the larger world of finance. Bitcoin Gold was born in November 2017 after it forked from the main Bitcoin codebase. It's very similar to Bitcoin, except its design allows the use of graphics processors present in regular PCs to mine the cryptocurrency, rather than the custom crypto chips that have taken over the mainstream Bitcoin mining. That's a strength in that it allows more people with cheap hardware to participate in the system, but it also represents a serious vulnerability. In May of this year, Bitcoin Gold was hit with what is known as a 51% attack, which we've spoken about before, in which an unknown entity successfully gained control of the Bitcoin Gold ledger by attaining more than half of the network's computing power. In other words, they bought up a ton of computing power in the cloud and briefly hijacked the system. While the attacker had control, they were able to double spend and ultimately siphon off roughly $18 million worth of Bitcoin Gold, which they cashed out as hard currency, through, you guessed it, cryptocurrency exchanges, including Bittrex. The 51% attack and other minor disasters have hit Bitcoin gold hard. Last year, it ranked as high as number five on crypto market cap listings. Today, it's 29. That's actually lower than Dogecoin. Right. When you get in touch with them, tell them Brian sent you. So normally I try to shy away from rumors because they're rumors. If we chased every rumor down, not only would most of them not pan out, it would also be endless. And the point of the show is to TLDR all of this stuff for you, right? But the big Apple event is a week from tomorrow. And part of the fun of an Apple event is to find out what rumors will pan out and what rumors won't. Right now, we're all setting up our Apple Keynote bingo cards. So as a part of teeing up next week's Big Bash, maybe you saw those mock-ups of what one designer thinks the new iPad Pros will look like. Thinner, more angular, no home button, thinner bezels, face ID camera in the bezel. The renders basically look like the closest Apple has gotten yet to that general look and feel of one of those pads that Captain Picard is always using on 
Star Trek The Next Generation, which I've always thought was Johnny Ive's ultimate end goal anyway. But if these renders are to be believed, they contain a big old technical problem. It looks like the smart connector used for external keyboards will be moved to the back of the device near the bottom. Some tea leaf readers think that means you'll have to hook up your iPad Pro to smart keyboards in portrait mode. And only in portrait mode. That would obviously be bizarre, as iOS on iPads is all about split screen in landscape mode, and landscape is the only orientation that offers enough physical space for full keyboards. Part of what fuels this rumor is another rumor that Apple can only get Face ID working in portrait mode. That tidbit seems to confirm the thought that maybe, indeed, the smart connector is moving to the bottom of the device. But Mark Gurman, writing for Bloomberg, has already said that the portrait-only Face ID rumor is bogus. German says Face ID will work in landscape and portrait orientations. If he's right, then we're back to not knowing where the smart connector is or even whether it still exists. Apple could theoretically move to Bluetooth keyboards or the smart connector might simply be on the edge like it has been for several generations. We're not even sure that the thing shown in those CAD mockups on the lower back of the device is a smart connector. It could be an inductive charging pad or touch ID sensor or something else entirely. We're in the moment before an Apple event when competing narratives develop, and this is one that we can watch next week unfold in real time. Who's right? Is Apple really moving the iPad to landscape typing only? If so, how will they sell that message? Can an Apple exec really stand up and say, we've reimagined how the iPad works. Now you can type in the orientation you never wanted. One more thing floating around today was that persistent rumor that Samsung is planning to launch its first foldable phone this year in an effort to upstage the new iPhones. No doubt you've seen that foldable OLED display video that's been making the rounds on the internet for the last several years. But CNBC had an interview this morning with Samsung CEO DJ Ko, who said, quote, it's time to deliver, unquote, on the foldable phone concept. Co hinted that more details could be revealed at Samsung's developer conference in November. If a foldable phone that even remotely looks like that concept video ever hit the market, I have a link in the show notes if you want to watch it yourself, you'd better believe that would get a lot of attention. But then vaporware has a long and storied history in the tech industry, of course. Just ask Bill Gates or the makers of Duke Nukem Forever. China just completed one of the world's longest bridges, 34 miles long, connecting Hong Kong to Macau and both of them to mainland China. The bridge cost $15 billion, and so what, Brian? We know China spends massively on infrastructure projects. But the tech angle here is what the bridge is trying to achieve. In what's being called the Greater Bay Area, the bridge is part of a larger plan to unite Hong Kong, Macau, and Shenzhen with other outlying cities such as Guangzhou. China is building a rival to the greater San Francisco Bay Area, which of course encompasses Silicon Valley, Oakland, etc. This new Bay Area region of China already has 67 million residents, and if stitched together into a single entity would have a trillion dollar economy all by itself. It would also surpass Japan as the world's fourth largest exporter. Quote, Hong Kong needs to diversify. It could be a San Francisco and much more to the Bay Area's Silicon Valley, said Albert Wong, chief executive officer of Hong Kong Science and Technology Parks Corporation. 
quote, Hong Kong can't afford to miss this boat, end quote. But as Hong Kong, of course, has its special status within China of semi-autonomy, all sorts of cross-currents of Chinese politics are going on here. Hong Kong was long a standout Asian economy, but it is now only equivalent to less than 3% of China's overall gross domestic product. It was 18% of China's GDP as recently as 1997. Will Hong Kong embrace greater integration with the mainland in order to claim the brass ring of becoming China's San Francisco? Quoting from the excellent Bloomberg piece about this, quote, the greater Bay Area could serve as a new growth engine for Hong Kong, Macau, and Shenzhen. The economic powerhouse, one of Chinese President Xi's predecessors, Deng Xiaoping, built on their doorstep almost four decades ago. To make it work, China must figure out a way to move people and capital more efficiently between its one-party state and the liberal capitalist bastions of Hong Kong and Macau with their own passports, currencies, trade policies, courts, and civil rights, end quote. So a tiny bit of a long read here, but worth considering whether a rival to the incumbent tech epicenter of the world might be rising on a bay on the other side of the Pacific. Hot on the heels of Google's duplex technology, Clink is developing an AI-powered system for a slightly different food ordering scenario. drive through restaurants. Instead of yelling into a tin can to order your burger from somebody wearing a headset inside the restaurant, Clink's system aims to let you yell into a tin can and have a cloud-based AI figure it all out. Although it's early days, it certainly does seem that the first use case for these new conversational robot voice thingies is clearly going to be food ordering of one stripe or another. Clink's technology is trying to solve a specific problem domain, voice ordering from a known menu using artificial intelligence. In demos shown to TechCrunch, the system was able to handle typical interactions that happen in real drive through situations like adding, removing, and modifying items within an order. By using voice feedback as well as a display showing the items ordered, the demo sure looks a lot like what happens today at a regular drive through except the robot is probably less distracted than a human worker who is typically also trying to take payments, quality check orders, and hand out food at the window. Clink says the system can be used specifically in drive throughs or in order-ahead apps. The current demo took just a few weeks to put together and is based on Clink's previous work in the financial industry, creating ways for you to basically talk to your bank account using unstructured language. Because the problem domains are relatively similar, Clink was able to reuse its conversational AI for the drive through app. If this app or others like it reach production, that's one more area, I guess, where humans need not apply. So, by the way, happy 20th birthday to Google. Google was officially incorporated on September 4th, 1998. The story I've always heard is that when Google got that first $100,000 check from Andy Bechtelsheim, they couldn't actually do anything with it. So they incorporated just so they could get a bank account and actually deposit the darn thing. I would have thought that this milestone would have gotten a bit more play, but then I've been told by people who work at Alphabet that there's some internal disagreement about which birthday to actually celebrate. I mean, the backrub PageRank algorithm gestated in 1996-97, and the Google.com domain name was actually registered September 15, 1997. But hey, let's go with September 4th because it's also the birthday of Google Chrome. The web browser debuted 10 years ago today as well. 
who demoed Chrome at its announcement. None other than a young, fresh-faced, recently promoted vice president by the name of Sundar Pichai. So Mazel Tov to all involved. That's all for today. I'm Brian McCullough. The show was written by myself and Chris Higgins, whose vote for what we should name trillion-dollar companies is Trill. If you've got something better, please let us know on Twitter. Talk to you tomorrow.